If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to Matthew and chapter 18. Matthew and chapter 18. Uh, Make sure you do have your Bible open. We're going to be in several places this morning. We're going to jump around a little bit. Uh, This is part nine of our Dearest Place on Earth series exploring biblical church membership. Next week, we will conclude the series uh, with part 10, 1 Corinthians 3, um, and then we'll get into our summer in Psalms, and then in August, we'll be back in Exodus. Um, Matthew 18 is where we'll be. Once you get to 18, go down to verse 15, and we're going to read through verse 20. The reason we're going to and fro throughout the land in our Bibles today is because we're going to explore the concept of biblical church polity, which I'll, I'll explain as we go along, there's no one text that talks about polity um, and the text, even though we're going to look at several texts, there's more text about this than what we could look at. Okay, so this is in no, by no means uh, conclusive or exhaustive. But let's begin in Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Let's go ahead and read this together. It'll be behind me on the screen in my translation as well. God's word says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, they ask, It will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Amen. It's God's word. May God write its eternal truths on all of our hearts. I bet you don't like authority, do you? Do you like authority? Let me rephrase, okay? Do you like authority that lies outside of yourself? Do you trust any authority outside of yourself? You don't like authority. And why should you? Haven't the systems and people on, in our world shown that they aren't worthy of trust? The government at every level seems corrupt. After all, headlines are frequently plastered with scandals. The so-called media can't be trusted. They surely lie all the time, or so we're told. But can we trust the people who tell us not to trust the media when they tell us we can't trust the media? And what is the media anyway? Our phones are probably spying on us. The websites we use feed us slanted narratives. Churches cover over abuse. Pastors and spiritual leaders have moral failings. And every TV show and movie seems to have some kind of agenda. Why should we trust any of it? Authority is one of those words that's not a cuss word, but it should be, because it makes us cringe. It belongs on the dump heap of taboo words that make us recoil with things like submit, obey, and roll tide. We don't trust anyone, (laughs) we don't trust anyone, just ourselves really, because who is right more than we are? We will do just fine controlling our lives, thank you very much. We prefer to embody William Hurst Henley's poem Invictus, which famously ends with, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. 
In his book, The Creedal Imperative, Carl Truman poignantly said the following, and I wonder if these words ring true for you. He said, authority lies within you, or at least that is the message the sales and marketing people wish to send. External authority is merely a repressive force that prevents you from being whoever and whatever you wish to be. We also see a kind of mysticism, he says, and pragmatism and anti-authoritarianism, where the locus of authority is ultimately not external institution or body of knowledge, but rather the inner being of the person. If it is true for me because I just know it in my heart, then guess what? My heart whether that is a feeling of happiness or of self-esteem or whatever, is the authority. Internal mystical appointed by me using pragmatic criteria and as far away from any notion of direct, external, or institutional authority as possible. Of course, it does not take a genius to realize that so many of the things that we just know in our heart do actually come from external authorities. Commercials, idiotic talk shows, television pundits, But that's not the point. The point is that we do not consciously understand this or recognize such authorities as having that effect. So says Truman there, we don't mind authority much. We just don't know that we don't because the authorities that tell us that there is no authority but our hearts do so rather skillfully and underhandedly. But this rejection of authority has some serious consequences because if you are the only authority you truly trust, then one, you're forgetful because you forget all of those times your feelings and inclinations actually steered you wrong. And two, the slippery slope of rejection of authority outside of ourselves will eventually find their target in God. I mean, is not the sin that plunged the world into darkness in Genesis 3 not a rejection of the authority of God? A rejection that came from the heart that believed even God was holding out on our first parents. Should the church be different is what I'm wondering. Should Christians reject all external authorities the way the rest of the postmodern world seems to? I mean, it's no surprise that the world does what it does. It's really not surprising that fallen people who don't know Jesus would reject anything but themselves. But should Christians be different, I wonder? A little bit later, in the same section of the creedal imperative, Truman says this. This is a little lengthy quote, but it's, it's, it's worth saying. He says, What never ceases to amaze me is the casual way in which people make and break membership vows, sometimes within weeks. I've seen individuals leave the church because they were not given the Sunday school teaching opportunities they thought they deserved, because they did not like the worship style, and because their children found a more interesting church elsewhere. That such reasons do not give any grounds for breaking vows never seems to register. Indeed, some leave without giving any reason at all, so lightly do they regard solemn vows taken before God and the church. What this phenomenon tells me is that this is Suspicion of, or perhaps better, indifference to external authority of, or of institutions is as deeply embedded in the culture of the contemporary church as in society. And such an attitude inevitably has an impact on the way creeds and confessions are viewed. The person who has no real practical respect for the church as an institution is inevitably going to have little respect 
for the documents that the church has produced and or authorized as part of the basic means by which she identifies herself and witnesses to the world and maintains some level of order within her ranks. I mean, is he right? The problem of authority seems to be shared by Christians and non-Christians alike, which spills into every avenue of life, including, of course, the church. Now, if you've been listening to the sermons in this series, you can't help but see that much of it has to do with authority, right? You can't escape it. The authority of Christ, the authority of the Bible, the authority of the church gathered, and our need to submit to all three. These have been recurring themes throughout. Without authority, church membership is utterly incoherent. Which brings us to the question of today. What should the polity of the church be? Polity is a word that basically means the form of government an organization has. So in other words... How ought the church be structured and governed? Make no mistake, this matters because you can't escape the question of polity. Polity is like theology in that everyone has a theology. Do you agree with that? Everyone has a theology. Everyone has a set of beliefs about God, man, and the world, even atheists. The question is whether their theology is right or wrong, right? Similarly, every church has a polity. The only question is whether one's polity is coherent, orderly, and most importantly, biblical. Because, as John Webster said, without an operative theology of Christ's present headship and concern for his church, without an understanding of the polity set forth in Scripture, humans' acts of ministry threaten to assume Christ's role. Surely, if it is true that Christ is the head of the church, do we agree on that? Does he rule over the church? Does he care how she's treated? Then he must have a design for how she's ordered and governed, right? It's not like he did all of that, and when it came to Paul, he said, you guys figure it out. Like, I'm sure whatever you come up with will be fine. If Christ is the founder and head of the church, surely he has a structure given to us in Scripture that ought to follow, and thus... Whether we do or not is a matter of obedience, right? Because you can hear about this topic and think it doesn't have much to do with you at all. Nobody who's excited today to hear this sermon, right? What does that have to do with me? But it does because members have a responsibility to pursue and safeguard biblical polity and obey Christ. But polity is one of those things in the Bible where you can't just turn to a single chapter that has the nifty heading of on church government. Nor can you turn to the book of church polity, right? Rather, it's like we said in the first sermon regarding church membership. It's like the magic eye pictures from the 90s. You guys remember that, don't you? Where the picture wasn't immediately obvious, it was kind of hidden and somewhat obscured, but when you looked at it correctly and intently enough, the image would come to the fore and you couldn't not see it after that. This is how polity is in the New Testament. It's there. But you have to be paying attention, which is why we'll be exploring several passages and not just one. But like the magic eye picture, once you see it, you have to decide if you're going to do something with it. So what is the structure of polity that the Bible gives us? This is what we'll see. The biblical polity or form of governance under the headship of Christ is this. Okay, I'll just give it to you straight away. Plurality elder-led, 
Deacon served, congregationally ruled. Plurality elder led, deacon served, congregationally ruled. So first, let's consider congregationalism. What is that? Benjamin Merkel helpfully defines it like this. Congregationalism is the idea that a local assembly of believers should govern themselves under the lordship of Christ. They do not answer to any other body. So this means the church is self-governed in that it doesn't answer to a hierarchical structure outside of itself, like a presbytery or a pope or anything like that. It governs itself under the headship of Christ. Well, what's that look like? Well, we won't spend a ton of time on this passage since this is the passage that begun this series, and we've already looked at it, and we've referenced it throughout the series. But what's important to be reminded of is the presence of congregationalism in this passage. Do you see it? Jesus has given the keys of the kingdom to the local church gathered to bind and loose. The congregation clearly has authority over the members of the church. So you don't join a church, you submit to it, as we've said. And the church thus has a responsibility to testify to members' ongoing faithfulness, to rebuke them in love if they're in ongoing and unrepentant sin, and to watch over their discipleship. So we note again that when the process to call a brother to repentance fails twice, what happens in verse 17? It doesn't say that they are to tell it to the elders, does it? or to the deacons, or to a board or committee or whatever other thing we can concoct. Though, if this process gets this far, of course, it should come to the attention of the elders. But it says to tell it to who? Tell it to the church. And it is the church who has the authority to remove someone should they no longer be able to testify to their striving to follow Christ. Do you see? So the church has authority to add and remove members. This is their first and greatest authority. See, we get bogged down in congregationalism as if it means each member must have a say in every single decision, even the most mundane, right? As if each thing should be decided as sort of a weekly town hall meeting. But Jesus shows us the first and greatest exercise of congregational authority lies in how it stewards its membership. That's what's missing in a lot of congregationalism. We think we're being congregationalists if we just want to have a say in when Sunday school is and where worship is and when that looks like, while we fail to care about the process of intaking and removing members and watching over their faithfulness. That's a failure, and that's not congregationalism. Now think about this. The fact that the church has the authority to vote on spiritual matters like adding and removing members, can we agree this is a spiritual matter? <laughs> and electing deacons and elders, and even voting on budgets, this is sp still spiritual matter because it has to do with the church, and property matters, does this not point to the importance of having high expectations for what it means to be a member? Because <laughs> if you say that you are an avid congregationalist, but you don't believe that member expectations should be high, like we've talked about the last eight weeks, then I'm not sure you're the congregationalist that you think you are. Because the acts of the church are inherently spiritual in nature, right? Because they have to do with exercising the keys to the kingdom. 
But if you don't believe it's even necessary for members to attend the gathering on a regular basis, you're saying that it's okay for people you cannot testify to the salvation of to come and vote on kingdom matters. If you aren't careful to protect the membership of the church and only have regenerate membership, which means only Christians who have credible ongoing confessions and observable faithfulness can be members, and you become lax with membership standards, then congregationalism is a wreck. It's just a wreck because then you have a bunch of unregenerate people arguing with each other in business meetings. I bet if you've been a Baptist for any length of time, you've been in an uncomfortable or ugly church business meeting, haven't you? Have you? It's like Baptist standard. Like all of you have war stories. I've heard stories from pastors, dudes throwing keys at each other and chairs, calling names and saying all kinds of horrible things at church conference. My mentor was told by a deacon, (laughs) I'm going to make your... My mission in life is to make yours a living hell. That's what he's done, like church conference. And we sort of accept, don't we, that ugly meetings are just kind of part of church life. You think that's fair? But that's not normal, <laughs> and it should never happen. No one should ever dread church conference. You know why it does happen? Because we don't take care to have standards for membership. If the church is full of spirit-indwelt people who are regularly disciplined and discipled, people who love each other enough to like come to the gatherings weekly and submit to one another, you're not going to have meetings like that. Congregationalism fades, though, when we don't have membership standards. Because not only will you likely have unbelievers making spiritual decisions, You'll have people who are not committed, who are not involved in the life of the church, coming to make decisions for the future of a church that they aren't actually engaged in. Like, okay, imagine if you, imagine if you knew of a husband and a father, told his family he loved them all the time, and then he just moved out. Okay, he didn't say anything, just left, all right? And say he did so at like the worst possible time in the life of the family, okay, the most difficult time in their life. Then he went and moved in with another family. All the while, he's like posting on social media about how he loves the family he abandoned. Then after being gone from his original family for a year, two, or three, he showed up at dinner one night and told his estranged wife that he wants to be part of the family planning for the coming year. And while they're at it, he thinks they should tear down a few walls, paint some rooms, and maybe just sell the house. And he also thinks the kids should change schools and his estranged wife should get a different job. Wouldn't that be incredibly strange, don't you think, and inappropriate? For one, his claims to love the family he abandoned ring hollow, right? His absence speaks volumes. Secondly, why should he have a say on family matters when he hasn't bothered to be there? Especially since he's missed all the things that have happened in his absence, which he can't take into account because he wasn't there. Churches can be like that if they don't guard membership and take it seriously. Folks showing up that you haven't seen in a year or more acting like they're interested and invested, but their absence says something different, doesn't it? Further, how can you really say you have true congregationalism if you don't even know who is in the congregation? 
especially if they don't show up when the church you know congregates. So the need for regenerate church membership, which, by the way, is a basic tenet of what it means to be a Baptist, is urgent when you pursue congregationalism. We see here in Matthew 18, it is the church who has the responsibility to care for who is and isn't part of the church, to have a clear line between the church and the world. We saw the same thing in 1 Corinthians 5, didn't we? There, Paul told the church to act in removing the man. He didn't tell leaders. He told the church. It was the church's responsibility to guard membership and one another's walk. They thus had authority to remove the man, and they had the authority to restore him should he repent. We also saw in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul tells the church, it is those inside who they are to judge, not those outside. Then in chapter 6, he tells the church that it has a responsibility to mediate conflict between church members. Now, turn to Acts 6 in your Bible. Acts 6. And we're going to see the church authority again extend to the election of candidates for office in the church. In Acts 6, we see the potential for disunity rearing its head in the young church in Jerusalem. And then the solution, which effectively brings unity. Okay, let's read verses 1 through 7. Look what it says. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve, this is uh, apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right, and by the way, full number of disciples means the church, all right? It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And then you jump down to verse 7. They, they list these names, right? And uh, they elected these men. And then verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of priests became obedient to the faith. Okay. So here we see that the church, in the church, there were people who were being neglected in the daily distribution. The apostles said that the task was too big for them to do it themselves, which means they would neglect word and prayer if they just devoted themselves to that. So what do they do? They create this new office in the church, and they lead the church to elect seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom. The church elects the men that are listed there, and the men get to work of the service of the apostles, to get to their whole selves, right, to the word and prayer, and what happens in verse 7. Because of this, not only did the church maintain unity, the church actually multiplied, didn't it? So in our discussion of authority of the church and of congregationalism, we see another way that this is exercised in the election of offices, of which there, like the ordinances, are two, deacon and elder, though only deacon is mentioned here. So putting congregational authority together so far, we could say this, all right? The local church has authority from Christ to exercise the keys to the kingdom. The authority, you'll note, is given to the church gathered not to individual members nor groups within the church. It's the church gathered that has authority here. The authority they are given is to add members, remove unrepentant members, practice discipline, elect candidates for church office, and even evaluate and confirm things like, this is a matter of prudence, not necessarily in scripture, 
approve things like statements of faith and bylaws and constitutions and budgets and selling and buying property and things like this. In other words, the church has the authority in major decisions. Now, we can naturally turn our focus to another aspect of polity, which is that the church ought to be deacon-served. Okay? Here, we see the office of deacon is created, and we see the precedent set for what deacons do. See, we can have many misconceptions about the role of deacon, because for the past 100 plus years, the role of deacon has morphed into many different wrong applications of the office. I think of Matt Smethurst in his excellent book on deacons. He illustrates several wrong approaches to the diaconate. For example, there's what he calls toolbox Terrence. He's chosen because he's good at fixing things. That's why they made him a deacon. Spreadsheet Sam is chosen because he's financially astute. Corporate Cliff is chosen because he's done well in business. That's why they made him a deacon. Vito Vinny, I've known a lot of Vito Vinnies, man, is chosen because he'll tell it how it is, right? And he'll keep the pastor in line. But Vinny likes to carefully bubble wrap his complaints with the tried and true, some people are talking preface. Pseudo-elder Steve might be the most common. He thinks elders and deacons have separate but equal spheres of authority. Elders handle the spiritual, deacons govern the physical. The deacons thus function as a deliberative body or a board of directors, if you will. Or maybe you can think of them like a branch of government that performs checks and balances on the elders' decision and acts as a representative of members and groups. All of those are wrong. Do you see any of that in this text we read? And all of them denigrate the office of deacon, which is a high office. The office of deacon is essential for the life of the church, but it's one that ought to be pursued according to Scripture, not the pragmatic, extra-biblical way that has been done in so many churches. I mean, you look at this text, and what do you see? You see solid men full of the Spirit, and what do they do first and foremost? They serve and they unite, don't they? They keep the peace. They don't inject division. They serve diligently to keep the church together. And they served in such a way that freed the apostles to focus on preaching and prayer and were thus instrumental in what happened in verse 7. The church grew and multiplied and stayed together and were multi-ethnic witness to the watching world when the deacons did their work. Smethurst, again, he, he brilliantly begins his book by saying that the first sentence of his book on deacons is, Nazis did not like deacons. That's the first sentence. He says that, after the Netherlands fell to Germany, deacons rose up to care for the politically oppressed. They supplied food and provided secret refuge. And realizing what was happening, the Germans decreed that the office of deacons should be eliminated. And responding in a general synod in 1941, the Dutch believers resolved, whoever touches the diaconate interferes with what Christ has ordained as a task of a church. And so the Germans backed down. He says the Nazis were threatened because the deacons' glad-hearted service and lion-hearted faith. He says Satan, Satan hates deacons when they're fulfilling their biblical role. But God loves them, which is why he created them to aid in the harmony and happiness of his people as kingdom advances. When deacons are doing their biblical work, they're a fantastic blessing to the church. And here in Acts 6, we observe their main responsibilities. I can summarize their responsibilities in three points. Spotting and meeting tangible needs. 
protecting and promoting unity of the church and serving and supporting the ministry of the elders. Don't you see all those here? Spotting and meeting tangible needs, protecting and promoting unity, serving and supporting the ministry of the elders. Now, elders are not mentioned in this passage, of course, nor are they synonymous with apostle. But the task of preaching and prayer are later given to the office of elder in the New Testament. So we could say that deacons act as shock absorbers for the elders, and they assist in executing the vision of the elders. Or to put it another way, the deacons lead by serving, and the elders serve by leading. The deacons are there to assist the elders and relieve them of any duties that would prevent them from doing those things that require their attention, energy, and time, namely leading, preaching, and prayer. So we must realize that deacons and elders are not the same. They are two different offices, but they complement one another. They aren't separate competing power blocks, okay? Which is why in Philippians 1.1, Paul says in his greetings to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the overseers and deacons. And it's why Paul gives two separate lists of qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, which you can turn with me to right now. Go to 1 Timothy 3. First Timothy 3. So here we have the qualifications of elders and deacons. Now you notice, you'll notice that Paul calls the elders overseers, okay? In the New Testament, the titles bishop, presbyter, overseer, pastor, and elder are all interchangeably used for the same office, okay? Though the word elder is the most common and used 17 times in the New Testament. Now look what it says in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 13. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit, fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now look at the deacon qualifications. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as a deacon if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise which you might have a footnote in there. We're not sure if it's wives or women that he's talking about here, but ESV renders it. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own household well. For those who serve as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in that is in uh, Christ Jesus. You notice here, 1 Timothy, that Paul is focusing on the character of elders and deacons, okay? You notice what's missing from the list of qualifications okay, <laughs> that we typically have. Paul is not at all concerned with whether or not deacons are good at business, is he? Does he care if they're financially astute? No. Is, does he care if they're good at investments or if they've been in the church a long time or any such thing? No. Rather, he focuses on what type of person they are, doesn't he? He cares about what type of person they are. Is he flexible? 
Is he humble? Is he a uniter? Is he a teacher? Does he yearn to serve? Now, you might be wondering why over the last 200 years, churches have morphed. I'm I'm telling you all these things, and you're like, I don't see this at all in the world, right? Why have we morphed from plurality, plurality of elders with serving deacons to solo senior pastors with deacons that operate as a deliverer of body? Now, the answer is long and beyond our scope, but let me try to give you a short answer of how we got here, okay? After the Revolutionary War, churches decided they liked the idea of American democratic government a lot, and for good reason, right? And so they wanted to mimic it in some respects in the church. The model I'm presenting of elder-led deacon-served congregation ruled is one that Baptists historically have held, but they eventually followed the trends of evangelicalism in the 19th and 20th century, which was to make the church as democratic as possible. There was also a growing rift between pastors and people, because the people eyed the pastors with suspicion, because the pastors were typically educated and were unable, a lot of times, to sympathize with regular people. They didn't want them to have any power. Further, many could not conceive, they they didn't have a category for that you could have plural elders leading rather than ruling, because there's a difference. They didn't think you could have both congregational rule and elder leadership because they feared elder-led would become elder rule like they saw in Presbyterianism. What they didn't realize is that no organization can function by the democratic process deciding every little thing. So there was a vacuum in leadership as there always will be in churches if the biblical model isn't pursued. And who should fill that vacuum? Deacons did. But now do you see a problem? The problem was you had deacons morph into filling the role of elder without meeting the qualifications for elder. Or in some cases, you had deacons who didn't even qualify for deacons, but they were doing the job of elder, which they also did not qualify for. Which is also why, as an, as an aside, by the way, mandating a set number of deacons or elders is typically unwise or at best imprudent. Because what happens if you don't have enough guys qualified for the office, but you need to meet a certain number? What happens? You know what happens. People who don't qualify are placed in those positions because you have a minimum number you have to reach, right? So th- this is the broad brushstrokes of how we got to where we are. But in a robust biblical model, you could have elders who lead with deacons who serve and a congregation that rules because if the elders get to a point where they aren't leading biblically, what can the congregation do? They could tell them to hit the bricks, right? But you could have elders who have God-given authority to lead and guide and protect the church who also have authority without being authoritarian. The problem is we're so used to an unbiblical model of member, pastor, and deacon that any exercise of authority by the pastors on even a mundane level causes some to be incredulous and act like Michael Scott did, on whom's authority was this done? Why? Because they don't get that pastors can have authority to lead while congregation gathered also has authority. Do you see? Some people just, they they can't make that connection. And it's because, like we mentioned in the introduction, our default posture is that all authority outside of ourselves should be rejected because we can lack the humility to submit to anything or anyone who isn't us. 
But you notice the differences and similarities in these qualifications. Did you notice that when we read these? Both elders and deacons, there's several similarities, are to be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to wine, and not greedy. But there's differences too. See, elders must be able to teach, whereas deacons are not required to be able to teach. Elders teach and preach, they the minister uh, the word, they feed the flock, they're also responsible for the direction of the church's education. This doesn't mean non-elders can't teach, but it does mean that those who do, do so under the elders' oversight, and elders are to protect the flock from false teaching and from those who would harm the flock through destructive doctrine. Elders, you also notice, are told that they must manage their households well, like deacons, but With elders, did you notice Paul adds something after that? He adds for elders, for someone, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? Deacons aren't called to manage the church, but elders are. And if you just, if you're still in 1 Timothy and you just look over at 517, you see what it says. Still in 1 Timothy 517, let the elders who rule well, be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching the word. Now, this, is, this word rule is used there in connection to elder and is the same word that's translated manage in chapter 3. Okay, same word. This managing is connected, do you see it, in 517 to preaching and teaching. Then you have another set of qualifications. We don't have, again, we don't have time in Titus. And in 1 Peter 5, let me read, read 1 Peter 5 to you. He says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So there... He says that elders must shepherd the flock and exercise oversight. So elders are responsible to teach, lead, pray, shepherd, feed, rebuke, warn, steering the correct direction, train in righteousness, and as we saw in Ephesians 4 a few weeks ago, equip the members to do the work of ministry. So if you consider members, deacons, and elders in the roles, we could illustrate like this. Imagine a ship, okay? The elders are like the navigators and they have the wheel, leading the church on the way it should go according to the word of God and under the headship of Christ, who is the ultimate captain and king. The deacons hoist the sails, cook, and ensure there are no hazards on the deck. The members row and are the sailors who do various jobs on the ship in order to keep it moving and get it to where it needs to go. But like a healthy body, what happens when someone doesn't know or do their role on the ship? Do you know what happens? If the leaders fail to lead, if the sails aren't hoisted correctly, if the sailors don't row or neglect their individual roles, what would happen? It'd be a disaster, wouldn't it? Or at best, it just wouldn't go anywhere. Right? There'd be no movement, no progress, no unity, no fulfillment of mission. Same as if everyone wanted to be the captain and navigator. Nothing else would get done because they're all fighting about who should give the direction. Everyone must do their part, but they need to see that, for one, no role is more important than any other. 
And two, they have to recognize that everyone has a different role and understand what those other roles are. A lot of conflict, I believe, can be avoided in churches if everyone would just know not only what their role is, but the role of biblical offices. Because you might have been bored to tears this whole time, wondering what all this has to do with you. But it has everything to do with you. If you are a member, that means you must steward your role as member and understand the authority that's been given to the church when it gathers. You must know what deacons are biblically so you can elect men who meet the qualifications. You must know what elders are so you can know what to expect of them. And once everyone knows their roles and pursues them biblically, the church can pursue health and repeat Acts 6-7, multiply. I want you to note something else. Uh, turn to, uh, back to Acts, but go to chapter 20, okay? Acts 20. And then uh, we're going to note a couple things here. We'll have one more place, and then that'll be it, okay? Acts 20. Note a few things, and then finish in this other text. Once you get to 20, go down to 17, Okay? It says, now from Maltus, he went to Ephesus and called the, elders, Paul, called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, okay, now you skip down to verse 28. He says all kinds of things, and then he turns his attention to these elders. And he says in verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men, speaking twisted things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remember that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Now, you've probably noticed I've used the word elder in the plural this whole time. Okay, Why is that? It's because, as Greg Allison puts it, Without exception, every time the New Testament mentions the government of a particular church, the leadership structure is a plurality of elders. Without exception, the New Testament never indicates that a single congregation was ruled by one elder. Wayne Grudem says, no passage suggests that any church, no matter how small, had only one elder. The consistent New Testament pattern is a plurality of elders in every church and in every town. Second, says Grudem, we do not see a diversity of forms of government in the New Testament church, but a unified and consistent pattern in which every church had elders governing and keeping watch over it. You see that? Don't you see that here? Luke tells us in verse 17 that Paul called for the elders plural of the church singular to come to him. And what's their charge? They are to watch over the flock that the Holy Spirit has made them overseers. You see that word again, exchange uh, together, to care for the church. And this language rules out authoritarianism, but also gives authority. Do you see? We, we don't know how to balance those things, which is what we'll see in Hebrews when we go there in a second. And we saw that in 1 Timothy. They're to watch, over, watch out for wolves and be alert for those who would prey on the church. What does it mean to have a plurality of elders, practically speaking? It means you have, a multiple, you have multiple men who hold the same office with the same qualifications. 
okay? It means you have elders who are on staff, like the lead pastor and associate pastors, but you also have men who qualify who aren't on staff but have vocations outside the church. But it means they're equal according to office and they share weight together. Think of, a, a, let's think of a biblical illustration, okay? Remember back in Exodus, we saw Moses' father-in-law come to him. Do you guys remember when he visited him? And, and they, they chatted a little bit, they fellowshiped, and, and Jethro, his father-in-law, he observed how Moses was spending all the live-long day overseeing cases for the Israelites, right? From morning, right when he woke up to when he went to bed, he was doing this. So Jethro said, what you're doing is not good. Find able men who fear God, are trustworthy, and hate a bribe, and let them share in this burden so it isn't on you alone. Do you remember that? In other words, he advocated for a sharing of responsibilities rather than it just being on Moses. Now, you mentioned something like plurality of elders in a church where such things have never been present, and some might say, he wants more power. Get him, boys, right? But really, what I'm personally advocating for is less. If a pastor wants power, first of all, like of all jobs, man, this is what you choose. (laughs) And second of all, you probably just keep the solo senior pastor model, right? Rather, an advocating for a plurality of elders is a desire to not only follow the clear biblical model, but to share the responsibility with other qualified men, both on and off staff. Because when we would get into a room to pray and discuss leading the church and what direction it should go, I'm another elder who could be rebuked and held accountable and outvoted as other guys speak into things and help me see things I might have missed. Further, I could also be pastored by pastors because pastors need pastoring too. And the benefits are numerous. To name a few, it helps with accountability, it balances gifts, it burden sharing, it also is a better picture of the church, meaning that it shows that ministry isn't just for a select few. Let's illustrate it like this. Do any of you guys remember getting a Swiss army knife when you were a kid? You guys remember that? When I got one, I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. I remember how shiny it was. I'd I'd just sit there and look at the tools that were in it, right? And I was like, you know what? If I went into the woods, I could survive, right? I got got all I need with this. Short knife, long knife, tweezers, a screwdriver, scissors, a toothpick. And who could do without a corkscrew in case a wild bottle of Baptist-approved non-alcoholic wine in the wilderness came across your path, right? A similar thing happens when you have a plurality of godly qualified men to serve as elders. Jeremy Ryan says, each brother brings unique, unique gifts to the team that beg to be discovered and used. It's like opening a human Swiss army knife, one elder gift at a time. Of course, all elders should share some gifts that are basic to the role, such as leading and teaching, yet even those gifts can vary in strength and shape. Also, think of how they will make up for one another's deficiencies. No pastor is the complete package. Every pastor has things they're gifted and good at and other things they're not so good at, right? And need to be, need worked on. When you have a plurality of elders, they make up for one another's deficiencies and they complement one another to better serve and lead the church. Do you see? And it is the church gathered who affirm these men and elect them and follow them as they lead. But if they cease leading in a biblical direction, 
If they consistently fail to meet their qualifications, if they cease to teach and preach the word of God, if they teach heresy, the members have an obligation to confront and, if necessary, remove. But, says Ben Merkel, the authority of the eldership comes from God and not from the congregation. The office does not derive its existence nor authority from the congregation. The elder's authority comes from Christ, and the congregation's role is that of recognition of God's gifting and calling. Even so... The elders' authority is not absolute. They derive authority from the word of God, and when they stray from that word, they abandon their God-given authority. You see? Last place. Turn with me to Hebrews 13, and this is where we'll uh, end. Hebrews 13, and then jump down to verse 17, okay? Hebrews 13, 17. And it'll also be uh, behind me. Hebrews 13, 17. He says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, what is the author saying here? Because he's using a couple words we wished he wouldn't. Right? Submit and obey. Now, please note... The author is presupposing that those who are elders are leading according to the word of God and are doing so faithfully. He presupposes they are pursuing the characteristics that he's mentioned in this letter so far. He presupposes that they aren't abusive or domineering and that they aren't deviating from the word of God because those who are abusive and don't lead the church toward faithfulness are not ones who should be either obeyed or submitted to. But this word obey means something like give deference to. Give deference to. It means that if you disagree with an elder or elders, you, of course, can and should go to them in private, express your reasons, hopefully from Scripture. If what the elders are doing is in keeping with the Word of God or something the Word is silent about, you give deference and support them, knowing that they're keeping watch over your souls as those who would give an account. So there's sort of this... Double exhortation here, isn't there? The author of Hebrews says that leaders themselves are subordinate to the one who will call them to account. So again, the authority they have is both limited and drawn from Christ. But knowing they're watching over you, again, assumes they're doing so according to the preached word. You you give them deference so that they don't lead with groaning, but lead with joy. Because if they're leading with groaning... It's not advantageous to you either, right? They can't lead in a way that benefits you if they aren't doing so with joy. One more thing we have to note, because this may be one of the clearest pieces of evidence of church membership in the Bible, okay? You consider this verse again. Here's my question to you on Hebrews 13, 17. It says to submit and obey your leaders, right? Your leaders. Which leaders? And here's the question to leaders, and them giving an account on how they led. Which people are they supposed to oversee? Who are they giving an account for? Right? Are Christians supposed to submit to and obey all pastors? Must they submit to all leaders in the city, in the state, in the world? Am I as a pastor going to be held accountable for every church in town? Christians are submit to their own leaders which implies a formal recognition of their participation in a church with particularly organized, recognized leaders, right? 
Church membership helps Christians formally recognize to whom they are to follow. And church membership helps an elder know which specific sheep are those under their care. The commands of 1317, nonsense, unobeyable without formal church membership. It's only the, it is the only biblical way for the people to know which leaders to submit to and leaders to know whom they are responsible for. This is another reason why membership roles should reflect those who attend regularly. How is it fair for elders to be held accountable for sheep who refuse to be part of the flock? How can an elder know who they're responsible for if the so-called members don't even come to the gathering of the flock for the feeding? Is it fair for elders to stand before the throne and answer for those who refuse to be shepherded because they wandered into another flock that they refuse to formally join, which is unfair to that shepherd too? Formal biblical membership helps Christians know whom they are to follow, and it helps leaders know for whom they will answer. So does church polity matter? It matters greatly. Jesus Christ, the eternally existing creator God, entered flesh, lived a perfect life, died a substitutionary death on behalf of guilty rebels like you and me, and rose three days later from the grave, then ascended to the right hand of the Father to take his rightful place on the throne of the universe, and he is thus the head of the church? The same church he died for and established, the same church he calls his beloved bride, the same church he said will prevail against hell itself, the same church he said he would build. And in his infinite grace, he has handed over to the church responsibility under his headship to steward rightly. And he has specific ideas handed to us by the apostles and inspired by the Holy Spirit on how the church should be ordered and how it should operate. So on the most basic level, this matters because it's a matter of obedience, right? But it also matters because we each need regular reminders of what our roles are and how they complement one another so we can pursue the mission faithfully. We must be reminded how we are, as a gathered church, have authority from heaven to bind and loose. How we have authority to exercise the keys of the kingdom in a way we accept and remove members and elect deacons and elders and how we expect them to meet qualifications and watch how they serve and lead. Christ has designed his church in such a way so that the ministry will be done and prevail because the church is God's plan A for reaching their community and the world, and there is no plan B. He expects elders to lead and the ministry and deacons to facilitate the ministry and the congregation to do the ministry. And friends, if we pursue biblical membership and polity, we'll be a united people who pursue the mission of Christ in the way of Christ for the glory of Christ until the day of Christ.